I hope to share some things that are very practical for anyone who's treating mechanical pain or spine, spinal pain in their clinics. Um, maybe we can just go around. Our, um, are there any PTs here? Okay, good. Doctors are okay, great. PAs. Um, now we have one pharmacist. Keith, thanks for coming. <laughs> Other people just tr wanting to uh, maybe just share a little bit about what this might involve. So, <clears throat> I always have a little frog in my throat in the morning, so I apologize for that. Um, so we're going to uh, talk this morning um, about something that most people are not, most people see often, but most people don't really know what to do with. Um, particularly if you're in a medical clinic and you're seeing patients. Are there any people that work, are working uh, outside the United States? Okay. Great. <coughs> okay. So these are my objectives for this session. Um, first of all, would be to understand uh, the... The patient who has mechanical spinal pain, which is very common but not often diagnosed or not often understood, to identify those people who might respond to the program that we're talking about, which is called mechanical diagnosis and therapy, which is also known as the McKenzie method. Uh, this is just something that I've come about in my practice uh, over the years. It's been very practical for me, really changed the way I practiced, and uh, can be applied in any clinic uh, with many uh, types of uh, spinal pain patients. Um, identify the type of program that the, the patient should be given, not shoulder. You can tell that I type as a therapist quite often, and the ER adds, is added at the end of the uh, should there. But um, And then um, also the process of taking a patient through a complete resolution of symptoms, through exercise and postural correction. So, <clears throat> a little bit about myself. Um, I graduated from Northwestern University in Chicago uh, back in the 1900s uh, when they were uh, teaching a variety of other things. And so the, much, much of what I do in the clinic I've learned since that time. Um, I was credentialed in uh, the McKenzie Method um, in 1999 and I've been working now for 40 years, and I've been working with Global Health Outreach since 2004. Uh, that's a short-term mission uh, branch for the CMDA. We have a booth downstairs in case you would like to know more about that. Um, I also serve on the Advisory Council for Global Health Outreach representing physical therapy, and uh, we meet once a year in Bristol to talk about what we should be doing and can be doing and policy changes and those kind of things for, for GHO. And then I've been to the Dominican Republic um, 14 years in a row. So when I first went there uh, in 2004, um, I said two things when I left. One was that the Lord would have to tell me not to go back. And then the second one is I wasn't going to go back as the only therapist again because we were just too busy. And that really was the time when GHO started to realize the value of having someone who could treat uh, spinal pain and other types of musculoskeletal disorders at the clinic. <clears throat> so 
So I have no interest in anything that can be sold through this process, and I am not an official representation of the McKenzie Institute. Um, I've been using the process for a long time, but there is a, uh, there's a training and uh, certification level that the Institute has for um, their uh, diplomaed uh, uh, faculty, which I am not one of. <clears throat> so mechanical pain, um, and this is something I have to preach to my peers often because um, musculoskeletal pain is not well treated or well understood in most general practice areas, emergency rooms, those kind of things. Most of the time they're medic people are medicated, uh, and oftentimes the natural history of the condition is favorable for us because it usually will go away in the first episode on its own oftentimes just by resting and avoiding those things that seem to bring it on. But mechanical pain can be uh, differentiated by others, by other types of pain. Uh, and I, as I explained it to patients, um, we'll talk about that a little bit. So first of all, it can be constant. It can be intermittent. Uh, movement and postural position changes generally influence it significantly. So uh, bending, lifting, uh, sitting, those types of things can influence it can be referred or radiating, meaning coming out of the center. And there's a process that we talk about in the McKenzie approach called centralization. Um, and that's a, uh, something that occurs with patients and is a very good predictor of benefit from this uh, program. I've seen patients with years and years of pain who respond quite quickly. Um, and so it can be short and long-term. It can be uh, generally will... Uh, show a direction of preference, which we're going to talk about. What does that mean and wh how do we handle that? Uh, it can improve with repetitive motion in the right direction. And so you'll start to understand that there is, uh, in many of these spinal patients, that there's a direction of movement that tends to make them have pain and that the opposite motion will have a tendency to correct that problem. And it may cause lo local muscle spasm and pain uh, from the spinal issues. So when a patient comes in and they're focused on their muscle cramping or muscle pain uh, in the neck or in the lower back, I'm, I'm almost always going to talk to them about the fact that this is uh, likely a response to something else that's going on in the spine and that we need to clear the spine first to make sure that we're not dealing just with muscle issues. So uh, there is a great focus on muscle spasm, on using medication for that, which sometimes is definitely the thing to do in the short term. But in the long-term correction of uh, the spinal, um, uh, <coughs> excuse me, spinal derangements is the thing that will benefit them in the long run. So if the program is beneficial for them, it's not only helpful during that time, but it's also something that prevents their second, third, fourth, <laughs> tenth episodes of these uh, conditions. It is common for, the, for um, mechanical pain to be episodic and repetitive, and so you might have it one time, and then three years later you have it again, and then two years later again, and then about six months later, and pretty soon the condition doesn't go away. So it's, it, it can have an inflammatory response, but generally is not primarily inflammatory. I tell the patients, so we're not dealing, let's say we're not dealing with inflammation, we're not dealing with infection, we're not dealing with a disease process, we're dealing with mechanical pain. And a lot of people have never heard the term mechanical pain, so they don't really understand um, what that means. <clears throat> 
So if we go back to 1956, Robin McKenzie was a physical therapist in New Zealand. He was trained as a manipulative therapist, so kind of like our chiropractors are, although he had physical therapy background. That's what their normal training was, and he was working in a clinic. And a gentleman came in while he was working on another patient, came in with a lateral shift in sciatica down. So you've probably seen these patients who can't correct and can't come back over to the center and they have uh, sciatica. So he asked the patient to go in and lay on the table, which was uh, back then called a plinth. It's a wooden table that had this thing in that position. He didn't tell him which position to lay in. And back then, the traditional treatment for back pain was Williams flexion exercises. So we would do knee to chest and sitting flexion and standing flexion. That was a progression, and that's about all that was being done. So the patient went in, laid on his stomach like this, and five minutes later, Robin came in, and he, the patient had abolished his pain completely. It had centralized out of the leg, and the back pain was gone by laying five minutes in extension. So this got Robin thinking about what do we do? What are we doing with patients, and what about moving them in the, a different direction than flexion? And it began his journey of 50 years of practice, uh, developing a, a program that was used to treat mechanical pain. And when he wrote his first book in 1981 for the lumbar spine, he said that um, likely what I'm teaching for the lumbar spine can be applied by the, for the extremities as well. So now if you go to the McKenzie um, series of training courses, you'll also get extremity uh, treatment for mechanical pain. The extremities actually are very fun to treat, but it's not part of our discussion today, unfortunately. So the principles of MDT or, or a mechanical diagnosis and therapy, and this video, this presentation is, is on the website, so you don't have to necessarily take notes, but if something sticks out or you have a question, we'll certainly uh, address those at the end. So uh, we begin with uh, the history and exam. Uh, we look for a direction of preference. We look for a response to repetitive exercises. So we're going to take a patient. An example, which we'll talk about, is the patient who bends over to pick something up, and they have a sudden onset of lower back pain. So they're in a flexion um, position when they're injured, and likely, uh, like about 99% of the lower back patients uh, under 50 years old, will respond to lumbar extension exercises. Um, we look for the centralization, peripheralization. So. When Mr. Smith came in, he had peripheralized his pain all the way to his foot, and it was coming out of the lower back. Five minutes of extended posture into lumbar extension, his pain had centralized. So they do find in the research that the prediction of centralization of symptoms out of the extremity, whether it be the upper or lower extremity, does show a good promise for the correction of that pain. And I think we've probably seen patients where they may come into the clinic, they're acutely involved, uh, you, you may give them some medication, they go home and they rest. Even if they're not exercising, they come back, they're better. Uh, maybe not completely better, but um, they're, they're better, and sometimes their pain isn't going into the extremity quite as far. Hi, good morning. <coughs> uh, we'll talk about the fact that end range motion is really the key to long-term control of symptoms. And then postural training. So if they keep feeding poor posture, they're going to have a harder time getting better with, uh, with any program. 
and then education for the long-term control of symptoms. So patients who get better with this program tend to stay better if they keep doing it. And uh, so that, that's an important aspect of helping them change their future. I say this is a life sentence for them. So um, they're going to have to do the exercises to stay better at least one time or two times per day. <clears throat> So even though a patient may come in and you haven't scanned them, you haven't really even probably x-rayed them, uh, you examine them, we use the intervertebral disc as the model for them to understand what's happening in the spine and how they're going to correct their spinal situation and how they're going to make it better or how they can make it worse. This seems to be the easiest for them to understand. And so I, I tell them up front, um, not saying this is what you have, but this will help you understand uh, a little bit about what's going on possibly in your, in your back. It will give you an understanding of why you're doing exercises in a certain direction to make yourself better. <clears throat> so in the history, we're looking for, uh, was there an injury, uh, a spontaneous onset? Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Patients wake up with it in the morning, they don't know what they did, or they um, are sitting too long, they ride in a car for five hours, and they get out, and all of a sudden they've got lower back pain. So it isn't always an injury necessarily. Um, but usually you can get a history to find out that there was a direction that seemed to aggravate them. They did something or they've been doing something or they did something the day before that took their spine in a certain posture. But it's not always clear. Um, so the, what, the other thing to say is or to find out is what is their tolerance for positions, activities, and the time of the day. So Positions will be, as you key into the understanding what the spine is doing in different positions, sitting, for instance, is flexion, bending forward is flexion. Uh, does this patient do a lot of that? Uh, we find that really patients who sit and patients who do physical work have probably equal occurrences of spinal pain, mechanical spinal pain. So it's not always uh, what they're doing, but maybe those who change their position have, have better benefit and have less trouble. The time of the day is often, uh, so when I'm keying into here the patient, I can almost always categorize the patient just by listening to their history. It hurts when I sit and when I bend forward and when I was bending over, I had a sudden onset of back pain. I get worse when I'm getting out of bed. I can't tie my shoes. I can't bend over to do whatever I need to in the morning. Um, and a lot of that is uh, the, the idea that we talk about is that the during the night, all the discs rehydrate, so when you're laying down, you, have, you actually get more fluid through the night as you're laying there. So when you get up in the morning, there's a tendency for it to have more, more morning pain related to a discogenic pain condition. Now, again, we haven't scanned them, so scientifically we don't really have that information, but we're working on that model so they have an understanding, and it seems to fit uh, in the category. I would say most of the patients that come to me either through direct access or through um, a referral uh, will not have been scanned. Probably most of them won't be x-rayed, and most of them won't need that. Um, so then, uh, does the pain change? Does it move away from the spine or more toward the spine? And so uh, I tell the patient that we're looking for a pain pattern that will allow us to treat the pain with exercise. So if they fit some of these categories, particularly in the younger ages, let's say under 50, which is getting younger every day for me, um, we're going to have a, a healthier disc, uh, less chance of uh, arthritic uh, changes, um, and so they're probably going to have something that actually is, is 
working with the hydrostatic uh, aspects of the of the lumbar, of the lumbar disc. Uh, of course, during the history, we want to see what you know red flags, yellow flags, green flags are all about. So those are things that we've learned in our medical training already that we know uh, something that doesn't fit the mechanical model. I'm going to be suspicious about. Um, pain that never changes, night pain, some of the other things that we've been trained to know. Uh, if I hear what I think I'm going to hear in the history uh, regarding uh, the onset of pain, what makes it worse, and the positions that seem to bother them, then those are usually green flags, and I just keep moving through the process to see where we can go with it. The nice thing about this approach is I, I likely will change their pain through the, through the evaluation. So Robin talked about how we're evaluating and we're treating at the same time. So you may be asking a patient to do certain motions, and then they get up and they feel better. Um, and so that's, that's the advantage to this sometimes. And that's even more common in the extremities than it is in the spine. <coughs> so we also want to find out what makes you better, what makes you worse, and can we categorize that in what we would uh, understand as a direction of preference. So is there a direction that we can proceed with this patient to make them better. <coughs> we'll talk about quickly about the effect of posture. We know that uh, the disc pressure increases when you are sitting. Uh, I don't know if those numbers are clear, probably pretty small. This is actually a study back from 1970. Um, and it just shows that when you, when you lay down, you, if, you, if you're standing, you're at 100% of your disc pressure. When you lay down, you go to about 25% of that. When you sit, you go up to 140%. If you lean forward, it's 190% of your body weight. So those were findings that they did by putting tensiometers into the lumbar disc to find out what, what the pressure situation was. So we know that that's, and I think common sense would tell us those things change. Uh, this is a picture actually of facet joints, but I want you to see what the lumbar disc is doing here. So this is actually uh, what we're working on as far as uh, the explanation for the patients. So flexion, I don't, probably don't need to do a lot of anatomy with you, you folks, but uh, we'll just talk about this. There's a distortion of the nucleus posteriorly when you go into flexion on the left, and there's a movement of the nucleus back toward the center, um, center of being from back to front, uh, when you do extension. So this is the basis of um, much of what we do uh, in the approach uh, is to understand what's happening with the intervertebral disc and are there actually exercises that we can do to change what's happening there. Before I go any further on that, um, let me say that Robin was very strong on the approach as a, as a symptom-based approach and not so much of what the anatomy was doing. So it's in PT school, medical school, we're trained to try to understand the pathophysiology of what's going on. And he said even if they discovered someday that the disc was not doing this, the beauty of the program is that we change symptoms. And through repetitive exercise of the spine in a certain direction, we can correct a problem and then have that patient uh, be able to sustain that correction through time. So. The model of the disc is easiest to understand, I think, by my patients, but um, it doesn't mean that that's uh, proven to be the issue. Again, the progression of the disc herniation, and most of the patients that I deal with would probably have something like the one on the left where there's a movement of the nucleus causing pressure on the posterior wall of the disc, which then can cause back pain. We know that there are sensory nerves in the back wall of the 
of the annulus, which we didn't always know, and that's something that's been discovered in the last uh, 20 years probably. So that the movement of the, nu of the nucleus posteriorly, which happens when somebody flexes or sits, um, is something that can cause back pain. Robin would say that um, once the um, you get to the to the extrusion level or beyond, that you're probably going to have a hard time controlling that disc, and so um, at that point you lose what he called the hydrostatic mechanism of the intervertebral disc, meaning that when it's in, when it's in its normal shape, you can actually likely control what's going on, but once it uh, extrudes, then you're going to have a harder time. <coughs> Again, the anatomy of uh, what it looks like in the neck for a, um, a herniated disc, a bulging, uh, however we want to talk about that. that is the, so that's the explanation of what I, I give to them, but I really focus more on, on the treatment and not so much the uh, anatomy. But I think people really have an understanding. When you could take a model and work it back and forth and show them what likely happens, um, that's, that's a benefit. So where do we feel the pain? Um, in the neck, often from the cervical thoracic junction moving down across the scapula into the hand. It's not a clear picture, but you can see that there's some shadow going into the right hand there. In the same way, um, in, the, in the lower back, we see uh, that it can go all the way to the foot and that it starts in the, in the middle of the lumbar spine. Um, so peripheralization, the movement of the pain away from the center, and centralization, the movement of the pain back to, to the center, are, uh, are, is a phenomenon that uh, Robin really focused on and is a good predictor of whether this mechanical diagnosis and therapy is going to be of benefit. <clears throat> so in the lumbar spine, we'll talk about that first. The most common injury is onset and flexion. I very seldomly see someone who's actually particularly the younger uh, patients who are actually injured in extension. That's really an uncommon thing. A slip on the ice into extension or a rear being rear-ended. I had a police officer that was hit from behind, uh, and then so she, she actually did better with flexion. But ex flexion is usually the cause of the injury, so forward bending, prolonged sitting, lifting, uh, repetitive motions into flexion are usually going to be the things that you're going to hear in the history. Uh, that is um, is the problem. Um, again, it may be felt anywhere from the lumbar spine all the way down to the foot. Um, it's usually worse with sitting, bending, or leaning forward, uh, brushing teeth, or just that little bit of flexion tends to be pretty aggravating as well because you're you're loading the anterior disc and you're getting a posterior migration of the uh, the nucleus. Um, morning symptoms, again, are uh, common. Uh, they tend to fade in about an hour. Um, the research shows that the, the fluid that is absorbed by the discs uh, at night when you're laying down, um, generally within the first hour, about 90% of that is dispersed. So that's why people get up, they take a shower, and they stretch out a little bit, and they tend to feel better uh, usually as the morning goes on, unless they have a really acute flare-up where they really can't move very well. They have a hard time even getting their socks on, shoes, and so on. Um, again, a little bit of it depends upon um, the age and the wear and tear on the, on the spine, but I would estimate 50 to 55 age group and under 
are usually going to show a direction of preference of extension, uh, meaning backwards bending. Um, and uh, then what we're also looking for, do they, lay, do they look, uh, work better in prone or working with extension exercises, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. So those are the things that we progress them through. And then uh, we always need to respect where the motion is tight and never go into pain as an exercise. So really focus on this a lot because a lot of people come into PT, they think no pain, no gain, and they're just going to have to work through pain to get better. And, and actually we're not doing that. We're working up to where there's restrictions and tightness, and we're not working past that. So no pain increase when you exercise. You're always doing tightness on, tightness off, and no worse. So one of the exercises that we'll use for repetitive motion into, into lumbar extension would be this, uh, the standing back bends. Um, this is an exercise that can be used. But again, the, the real key here is to determine what is the end feel for them. If they can do this comfortably, then you encourage to, for them to do it. If they can do it but they feel uh, a tension or a pinching in the back, then you can't progress them into that level. So up to tightness. Again, tightness on, tightness off, no worse. They can only go into the tightness. They cannot progress themselves past that, and if they do, they're going to make themselves worse. concept there would be that as you're extending the segment, moving the vertebrae back into a lordosis or extension, that if you go too far, you could close the back wall down on top of the um, on top of the, of the posterior annulus area, which would cause um, more symptoms. So again, you have to just stay within tightness. So what I think happens, and I think what Robin teaches, is that there's a gradual movement, oftentimes quick, slowly, of the nucleus posteriorly. So it occupies that posterior part. So people may sit and be comfortable because they've opened the posterior area up, but then when they go to stand up and they start to go back into lordosis and they close that down, they have a really hard time getting up. They have to walk up their legs as they're coming up and gradually get up as they change the mechanics of what's going on in the spine. So you might start out, after you look at their physical aspects of their exam, you might look and see what, what is their response or tolerance to standing back bends, lumbar extension. <coughs> If they can do that, that's going to be a much more commonly used and have the ability to go through that um, throughout the day, even if they're working. So if they're successful with just a lumbar extension exercise and they can go back repetitively and you see benefit from that over time or they have what we would call, a, a Robin would call a posterior derangement, meaning that the disc is deranged and coming out into the back wall and they can do this comfortably and have benefit from it then that's an exercise that's really uh, can be done throughout the day for most people at work and home. If they don't tolerate that well, and it's not uncommon in the early stages that a patient would really have difficulty because they're loading their spine and extending at the same time, that they really need to unload the spine to have the most benefit. And so uh, prone on elbows or prone to start with is usually where I'll start with a patient just to see what their tolerance is. And they may have had pain for a long time, they come in and lay on the table and prone, and you can actually abolish their pain. And I tell them that's a good sign because I think if you had a herniated disc, it would be difficult to get you to, in any position that would make you comfortable. So um, the idea would be that, um, first of all, flat prone is where I start. And sometimes we'll even go into a little flexion by putting a pillow under there. So my, my goal in this is to try to get them uh, without pain, if that's possible. 
it's very common that they can. So either prone or maybe a prone and a little flexion, a pillow or two under the belly, and that's where they start. They're comfortable. They understand, well, this, this is the first time I haven't had pain for weeks. Um, maybe this guy knows what he's talking about. So then we progress to prone on elbows from prone, and we begin the process of lumbar extension. And so it's non-weight bearing, unloaded lumbar spine, and as we're starting to go up, we see what the tolerance is. So the barrier that he's going to feel, he or she is going to feel, is where the tension will start. So it might be that they're comfortable in prone, but once they get into prone on elbows, uh, there's tightness there. So that would be the exercise to start with, and that is prone flat to prone on elbows, feel the tension. Again, we're working the barrier, the tightness in the spine. We're not going through the barrier into pain. Okay. So I take this patient up and down, and commonly, once I get them the third or fourth time up, they're noticing that the, it isn't as tight as the first time they went up. And sometimes then it's comfortable on el- prone on elbows. So we've already changed the mechanics of something there. What I tell them is um, we're treating soft tissue problems. Bones don't change unless you're a surgeon. And so um, in, in the context of exercise, if something's changing, it means it's the soft tissue. And, and so they understand when they first started at prone on elbows, it was kind of tight, and they went down by the fourth time. Now they don't feel that in their back, so something has changed, and that's that gets them kind of connected and interested. Early on, we talked about the principles, meaning that if we find a direction of preference, so let's say this person comes in, they've lifted something, they have back pain, uh, and you find out through their history that they do much better standing than sitting, and that they, in the exam they can bend backwards, but they have very little forward flexion without pain. So I'm going to pursue this lumbar extension as a treatment for them. So the press-up, so the key, again, is repetitive motion and end-range motion. So to get them better in the long run, I've got to have them doing lots of reps to start with, and then progressively that, as their pain goes away, they do less. And then we need to get them through the full motion to be successful in the long term. So, again, looking at the model of the, of the two vertebrae and the disc, if I only get them through partway, partway through motion, uh, then there's a, there's a chance that they're going to have a reoccurrence of those symptoms probably pretty, pretty quickly. So it's really important for, uh, for us to take the program, not just to make them feel better temporarily, but for the long-term success. So lumbar press-ups, uh, lumbar extension is what we're trying to do there. And so as the patient is able to go to the barrier, the same principle is tightness on, tightness off. So as they're laying on their stomach, they're doing this one repetitively. They're not holding it like on the elbows. They're going to come into the tension and then back off, and they're going to do this repetitively as they come up. <clears throat> now, and initially, if you're, if you're having back pain and you can't go to work, or even if you can go to work, and I think this program is going to help you, I'm going to ask you to do these exercises every hour. Because the rest of your day you're sitting, you're bending, you're getting in about, out of your car, you're sitting on the toilet, whatever it might be, it's all flexion after that. So... Lots of repetition to start with, but progressively as we see a healing process, abolishment of pain, and the ability to sustain that abolishment of pain, then we cut back to one or two times a day. But that's, that may be over a six-week period. So we're really working to see change, lots of changes mechanically as we're working on this early, early in the program. <clears throat> 
So that's going to take care of the posterior derangements on most of your patients. I'm going to go back to this so you don't read ahead. Um, so what I find is most patients have bilateral or central pain and can get better with just sagittal extension. Okay, so they're not we're not adding anything else into it. Um, and again, this uh, this whole process is a uh, is a certification process of uh, five courses and an exam and, and the diploma people, which I'm not diploma, I'm, I'm credentialed, um, have uh, done nine weeks of study, uh, in-house study for this to be, become diploma. So there's a, there's a system here and a process that takes some learning, but I'm just trying to introduce you today to the concept that we have a tool out there, uh, and if so, if you're in an area where you have uh, therapists to refer to, and they they can do some McKenzie training, that was re- really beneficial. If you're out overseas someplace uh, and you don't have PT, then this might be something just to study up on a little bit more, so that you can help benefit your patients. <clears throat> All right. So sometimes we have unilateral or one-sided pain. We might have sciatica down the leg, um, and so sometimes we have to add other types of things to get that pain to centralize. Sometimes patients will just lay down, do straight extension, and get better. They'll they'll just be able to centralize their pain by laying down. So if you have a patient who lays prone, even though they might have sciatica, they lay prone and their their pain abolishes, it's likely that straight extension is going to take care of that for them. Not all the time, but a good portion of the time. So when we start talking about radiating leg pain, This can be anywhere from the right buttocks, which people will call their hip, uh, down the hamstrings, they'll call it a hamstring strain, all the way to the foot, could be numbness, tingling, pain, all of those symptoms. And again, we're treating symptoms here, and so all of the symptoms that we're treating are what we're looking to correct and centralize. Um, Certainly, there can be a progression if it's advanced to weakness, loss of reflex, loss of sensation, I think most of us know how to handle that or what to do with that as far as uh, those are a little more of the yellow flag, red flag type of things when they've actually had it pressure on the nerve long enough to actually lose their reflex. But we also see that come around the other way, too, when, when they're treated properly. And then uh, pain in the back or in the front of the leg. Uh, obviously, in the back of the leg, it's called sciatica. Uh, front of the leg uh, usually will go to the knee. And that's a little, a little higher level uh, in the lumbar spine. So this will require uh, something before you do your extension, a unilateral exercise. Um, there's a couple different ways to do this. Um, standing side glides would be one, which would be a frontal plane exercise. So we're doing a, like a side bend type of thing. I'll show you that picture in a minute. And then uh, flexion rotation uh, laying down, uh, which is a movement uh, of uh, transverse plane motion, which sometimes helps to centralize their symptoms. In the standing side glide, we're looking for uh, the patient to produce tension, and they're going to be side gliding uh, with their uh, non-painful side to the wall. So this would be a gentleman with right-sided symptoms. What I would look for here is as he does the side shift into the wall that he has tension on the right side of his lower back, which I tell him then means that he's addressing the tissue that's causing his problems. Um, If he does this and he gets a sharp pain into the sciatica pattern, this is not going to be helpful for him. It's going to be aggravating because you you can't really 
it's hard to do just a little bit of this. And then, so if you're feeling he's got this generalized leg pain, he does this, he feels some tension on the side of the, of the back, and you see good tolerance for that exercise, um, then that he may be a candidate for using this to get the pain out of the right leg and into the back, which is what we're trying to do. We're trying to centralize the symptoms. So you do this 10 times repetitively as far as he can. So again, concept is repetition and then range motion. So we're going in, but the, the principles are still tension on, tension off, no worse. So he's not going in and causing a sharp pain in his back. He's going up to the barrier, f finding the tension, and then backing off. And that will likely change. Oftentimes, if a patient produ produces some tension symptoms in the back as they're doing this exercise, um, they'll come in about three days later and say, I don't feel that anymore when they do that. So that means they've corrected that. Generally, their pain would be centralized then at that point, too. I'm going through this pretty rapidly because I have a lot to cover. This is, again, mostly an introduction, so if you have any questions along the way, please write those down. We'll talk about them. So this is the other one is uh, what we call flexion rotation. So she's uh, flexing and rotating, and you might say, well, she's, you know, she's going to get better with extension. Why are you flexing her? So the rotation has to really have a component of flexion. So this patient would normally start out for left-sided pain on her left side and then bring the legs over and her shoulders back so that you're in a left rotation. You're rotating toward the side of the pain, basically. And you can start laying on your side for this and do a very gentle position and then gradually move to your back and get the legs all the way over. Again, this is a unilateral approach for left-sided lower back pain or sciatica. Sometimes patients, if you just lay, they have the left leg pain, if you just lay them on their side, that side, bring the top leg forward and the right leg back, which we used to call the million-dollar roll position or something like that, a lot of times, just over a few minutes, their pain will centralize out of their leg. Then you can get them on to the prone position. So either one of these needs to be followed by extension immediately afterwards. If you're doing side gliding, then likely I would have them do standing back bends or the press-ups right after that. So conceptually, what we're doing is we're putting in a lateral motion, influencing the disc, the nucleus, to move more toward the center. And then we need to extend it to keep it forward because, again, they're, they're primarily a, uh, what Robin would call a posterior derangement, which means the jelly has, the nucleus has moved posteriorly. We need to get that to move anteriorly again. <coughs> so, uh, in a very few patients, I would say one in a three, four hundred patients, uh, unless they're over 55 or 60. Then they may come in with more of a stenotic pattern. They need actually need flexion to get better. So at that point, uh, again, once in a while, a young person injured in extension could have a flexion uh, pattern that they need. But more times than not, this is going to be the 75-year-old guy who's had this chronic back pain, <coughs> excuse me, which is mechanical in nature. So he has a hard time being on his feet. He has a hard time walking any distances. Uh, similar to intermittent claudication, but it's back pain. And so sometimes these people will respond to, um, to the flexion series here. And usually what I'll do is I'll, I'll start them in the sitting flexion posture and uh, use the middle exercise. Unless they're really acute, we could lay them on their back and do the knee to, knee to chest. 
but it's usually going to be sitting flexion. I may not go any further than that if they're abolishing their pain as a result of doing repetitive sitting flexion. Again, contraindicated for the posterior derangement patient, contraindicated usually for the lower back patient um, who are younger. But the beauty of the program really is that you have a system of understanding that you, find, you work with them until you find the direction that they need. And sometimes that will fool you. So you can't just put everybody in a category because they're under 40, that they're all going to be extension. Most of them will be. A high majority will be, but not all. All right, I have 20 minutes. We're going to move up the spine and talk about the neck. Uh, the cervical spine is, uh, tends to be more of something that people tend to put up with. The lower back tends to be something that incapacitates them and they can't go to work. They can't sit. They can't even drive to get in the car. The neck tends to be more chronic, still can be very acute, but tends to be a long, longer-term issue for a lot of patients, and they just think it's part of life. I sit at a computer all day long or I ride in a car all day long, and it's just that's kind of the normal process. Oftentimes comes from the head forward posturing, can again be peripheralized out of the neck, going down into sometimes the chest, the mid-back, down the arm to the fingers. I think we all know that. Uh, symptoms are related usually here to the lower cervical region, which I would categorize as C4 to T2, somewhere in there. And uh, so this is felt in the upper back. It's that I hold my stress in this place, whatever it is, uh, type of deal, and oftentimes is a uh, is a mechanical problem. So if the patient hasn't been evaluated for mechanical pain, sometimes a chronic situation sets in, which is really uh, uh, too bad. I've had patients who have been diagnosed with fibromyalgia but and had this chronic upper back and neck pain for 15 or 20 years, and they go through the program and they're better. Uh, because it was not fibromyalgia, it was a mechanical cervical spinal pain. The upper cervical headaches, uh, so if we go into a head forward posturing, you can see that the mid-cervical to the upper thoracic all go into flexion. They're flexed compared to the segment below them. But the upper cervical area actually goes into extension. So to keep their eyes on the horizon, they're going to back bend the upper segments. And that's where we can develop sub uh, upper cervical headaches or what we call suboccipital headaches. And so they actually need something different. Uh, there's no discs in the top two levels, as you most, mostly know. And so... Uh, we're not dealing with a discogenic pain. We're just dealing with muscle tension that is then needs to be stretched out because it's adapted to this cervical, upper, upper cervical extension posture. We'll talk a little bit about that yet. Uh, obviously, can be very chronic, accepted as part of life. You know, if it's below level 5 on a scale of 0 to 10, most people will just kind of take an Advil in the morning and, you know, maybe put some heat on it at night, and they kind of just put up with it. Uh, obviously, if it gets acute and, and ridiculous, then they have a tendency to run in and, and try to find a relief for it. Uh, again, patients really focus on the trigger points, the muscle pain in the upper back and neck that comes along with this commonly. And I tell them, first of all, we've got to treat your spine. We can chase muscle pain all day long, but if we don't treat your spine, you're not going to get better. So we have to do that first. And most of the time, those trigger areas are gone by the time you're done treating them. Not all the time, but oftentimes. Um, so postural ma management is really important and exercise. Same principles, tightness on, tightness off, no worse. Lots of repetition to start with, and end range motion is critical. 
So if we look at uh, head forward posturing, you can see what that does to, uh, both to the upper and lower cervical area and is common with, you know, working uh, at the desk or sitting in a car or any of those types of things. Here it just shows a little correction of posture with the use of a lumbar roll. So I, I tell patients you can't correct your upper back and neck positioning until you change what's going on in the lower back. And so I tell them just roll up a towel from home, put some tape around it, and you've got a cheap lumbar roll. You can spend money on it, too, if you'd like. But uh, that tends to be the beginning of where they need to be with their posture. Uh, elbows under the shoulders, and then the uh, chest held high, and that usually will correct most of what's going on. <coughs> so the correction of this uh, starts out... Um, in most cases, in the sitting position, and we start what we call cervical retraction. So all we're doing is really correcting the posture. We're going from head forward posturing, and we're coming back into cervical retraction. So the face goes straight back. The head doesn't tip down or backwards to start with. You're just going to take that face and just go great, same orientation of um, vertical position. And what's going to be felt here is tension in the lower, lower cervical upper back area and maybe some tension in the suboccipital area because they're starting to stretch uh, the muscles that are, have adapted during this time. Principle of this, tension on, tension off, 10 times every hour, frequently throughout the day. And they start remodeling what's going on in the, in the intervertebral disc and they start stretching the suboccipital muscles out. And this is a process, so we want to be very careful that we don't flare them up the first day. And so we just encourage them just to be very sensitive to that barrier. The barrier, again, is where they feel tension, not going through tension to hit pain as they're exercising. So we look at, we look at the process here now. <coughs> seldomly do I need to add a lateral motion like in the lumbar spine. Most of the time, the patients will centralize by doing straight axial sagittal plane motion. Tightness on, tightness off, no worse, 10 reps hourly. If they tolerate that without flying up a headache or aggravating their symptoms, then we'll add what we call overpressure. So overpressure is the beginning of understanding how we get them in full range of motion. Okay, so full range of motion is the ability in your lumbar spine to go to full extension. I'll talk a little bit about how I do that. In here, we're going to just add some extra overpressure, push on the chin, Feel the tension, same principles. So they're working through changing the soft tissue to get that full motion back. When they can go into full retraction and not feel tension, then they're ready to move on to the next one. Again, very frequently throughout the day, not forcefully. It doesn't take up much time. They can do these in 30 seconds every hour. Um, and so most patients will come back the second time. I say, how did you do with the exercise? They said, well, I didn't do it as often as you asked me to. Well, how often did you do it? You know, maybe every three hours. So, you know, that's still going to change things. So I aim for the every hour, which some people might think is unreasonable, but it really doesn't take much of their time. And if they want to get better, they'll apply that. So now they can go through full cervical retraction, no tension, no problems. They've worked through the soft tissue. Things are changing. And now they're going to start the process of going into assisted extension. So that is... Not necessarily sitting, but standing. So you're going to use your hand to kind of guide your head back. So you just use your fingertips to take the pressure off, the unload the spine a little bit. And you come again to the tension. You're going to stop there. You're going to come back up. Tension on, tension off. Tension on, tension off, just to the barrier. 
the barrier changes and allows you to move further through your motion. And eventually you get to full extension, which is the next one. So now she's pushing under the chin, getting full cervical thoracic extension and sitting. And again, we're taking it tension on until there's no tension. Then you go through normal motion. You've gained back your normal mobility. In most cases, the pain is going to be under good control by the time they can do that. <clears throat> the thoracic spine. Um, very commonly, if patients have pain in their upper back, it's coming from their neck. So you have to clear that as well. But the thoracic spine does play into limiting motion in the cervical spine. So if I'm trying to extend my neck, but my thoracic spine won't extend, I'm going to kind of get stuck. So it's important to work on the thoracic spine if you're treating a neck as well. So um, oftentimes, the, if you see the referral patterns we talked about, the, the pain comes from the cervical thoracic junction into the scapula and then down the arm. So this upper back, interscapular pain often is referred from the cervical spine. So um, I would say I treat very few th real true thoracic patients. Most of them are cervical patients that get better when you, when you apply the, the principles to the cervical and the thoracic spine. Again, associated with a head forward posture, um, they can develop lots of muscle tenderness. I hold my stress up here. You know, this is always tender when I'm trying to work on it. I go to the massage therapist, and that feels good for a while, but really doesn't take care of the problem. Um, the, the exercises for, directly for the thoracic spine will be less mobile because you have the rib, ribs limiting that, but you can still get some pretty good work done with a thoracic extension and uh, it's common to have lost the flexibility uh, over a period of time. So, again, if you're dealing with a 20-year-old 20, 20 who's in an office position, you're going to have a lot different uh, course of treatment than a 60-year-old just because of uh, restrictions of soft tissue, and uh, the young ones are much, usually much more flexible. So the thoracic extension is over the top of the chair. You're going to put your fing lock your fingers together, put it behind your head, or your neck, I should say, Elbows forward, so I would actually in this picture I couldn't find one, but I'd rather have her elbows closer together. So you're really very much focusing and fulcruming right in the thoracic spine. That's your goal. So the idea is to begin the process of thoracic extension, which is going to allow your cervical extension to go much better. So by the third visit of a cervical patient, I'm usually giving this exercise as well. And the the Feeling here would be mid-back tightness. Again, they're not going to cause any symptoms. They're locking the cervical spine so that the whole upper uh, the shoulders, neck, and head are all kind of moving in one unit, and you're really fulcruming right in the middle of the back. Uh, so let's just review the principles of exercise. I realize I'm, I'm going through this quickly, but there's a lot of material in one hour. So uh, the frequency of exercise, uh, again, I aim for every hour. Uh, it's not time-consuming, but it's repetitive, and it corrects the forces of the day generally, which is what we're trying to not only make a patient better, but we're trying to take them away from the things that tend to make them worse. There's no magic in 10 repetitions. Uh, I suggest that 8 to 12 reps per session. If they want to do more and it's not irritating, they certainly can overdo it to start with, so they have to be a little careful that they're not pushing it too fast. But once they tolerate the exercise as well, you know, it doesn't matter if they do 10 or 20 uh, per session. End range motion is the goal. So those, those overpressure exercises of 
extension, uh, the press-ups with overpressure, uh, which we'll talk, I'll, I'll just cover that here in a second. Um, those are all the things that are important for the long-term care. So once they get full mobility at the segments and there's no tension left, that means that the segment's moving normally through its motion. It's much easier to maintain the, the aspects of what you've treated there than if you don't reach that. Talked about centralization and peripheralization of symptoms. Um, a lot of times you don't have to add lateral motions in uh, because the sagittal plane exercise will take care of that, but that's one thing you're looking for. So an example would be a patient. So you've got a patient you're trying to work uh, extension with, and so you've been doing the press-ups, and they're not really making progress through that, and their standing back bends are kind of ten tense and tight. Um, in that case, you probably do have to add a side glide or flexion rotation to get that plane of motion cleared before the sagittal plane will go all the way. So just keep that in mind that if we're kind of stuck making progress with the sagittal plane exercises, you may have to add one of those other motions in. Uh, so we're, we're altering the mechanics of the disc or we're changing something in the spine. We're not just doing a stretching program. This isn't just yoga. This is a you know, whatever. This is a very specific exercise program for your very specific condition. It just happens that you tend to be like millions of other people. Um, we're working with a direction of preference, which is almost always clear, but not always, depending upon their pathology. So Robin could treat a patient in three visits and know he wasn't going to be able to help that patient. And it might take me six because I, I have more pride, maybe. I don't know what it is, but you know, you go through that and you really say, okay, this patient's not mechanical. There's something else going on here. Uh, they should be getting better at this stage. I've seen them five or six times. There's just nothing changing. So either the patient's not compliant, which is a possibility. You've given them the wrong thing to do, which is a possibility. Or <clears throat> there's something else going on, which isn't allowing the mechanics to change, uh, whether it's a herniated disc, whether it's a tumor, you know, some of those other things. But you're not going to treat them for 20 or 25 visits and then say, well, I guess I can't help you. you know, you're going to know within a few visits that they're actually, um, they're actually not getting better or they are. The neat thing about this is the patient realizes this is helping me. You know, it's not, so I'm not against core stabilization. I'm not against other things, manual therapy that PTs do. I mean, a lot of that is helpful for all the things that we do, right? But when a patient can do this, they can do it hourly, they can make themselves better and keep themselves better. That's really the journey that you're on. And in the medical clinic overseas or any place, if you have one accident, you see a patient one time, what can you give them, you know, that lasts forever, which is other than, you know, exercise and education basically is what you've got for them. There will be some new pains as they start to work through some spinal things. They're changing soft tissue that has not moved in quite a long time. So new pains up the spine when you start doing the lumbar extension is very common. It goes away in a few days. So just make them aware of that. So like we do with the standing back bends, we unload the patient for prone um, lumbar spine. This is, these are a couple of techniques you can use for the cervical spine. So patient's really acute. They can't just come here and do this type of thing. So what I do is I unload them on towels bring them back into their head forward posture, and then start the retraction process there. So they're going to feel probably better in a protracted position because you're taking them out of the extension that they can't tolerate. Imagine that that extended segment is now 
not tolerated very well, so you've got to bring them forward and unload them, and oftentimes this will abolish their pain. And then they just start a very slow process of cervical retraction, bringing the chin down from that posture. And they'll work their way down gradually, so they loosen up, and the next day they may use two and a half towels, the next day two towels, the next day a towel and a half. So progressing toward uh, full extension and then being able to lay flat and do cervical retraction. So if your patient is obviously pretty acute and they can't do cervical retraction in sitting or standing in a loaded position, you need to unload them, just like the prone and prone over pillows or the prone and elbows for this is what we'd be, be eventually looking for. Now, this guy's thoracic spine doesn't move very well, does it? You can see that all of his extension is pretty much cervical. So, but this would be the end of that over the uh, that unloaded positioning for uh, cervical extension. And you have to be aware of, you know, the um, vertebral artery, although there's a lot of debate whether that's even predictable or even something that we can determine. Just monitor their symptoms. If they don't get vertigo or nausea, progressively in this exercise. Very seldomly do I have patients that have trouble with that. All right, I got four minutes to review. We'll take a, little, a couple questions here in a minute. So again, mechanical pain is treated successfully with a repetitive end range motion uh, when it's combined with postural correction education and we found their direction of preference. That's key. Uh, patients can be empowered to treat themselves with a proper home program. Patients can control their pain long term. And mechanical pain has specific characteristics. Centralization, response to repetitive exercise, reduction of, uh, with postural correction and proper biomechanics. Mechanical pain must be treated mechanically to be successful. So if you have a patient that comes in, they've got, they've got a mechanical cervical spinal pain, they've got all these knots and muscle pain in the upper back and neck, and you focus just on that, they're likely not going to get better unless they're going to get better on their own anyway. So a lot of times the first few episodes of these tend to be self-limiting anyway. So you give them some medication, they get better, and the, the problem is is they're going to be back in a year or they're going to be back in six months because they're having that issue, or they never really clear completely. They just put up with it. These are some tools you can pick up. Uh, you can Google this. Uh, I, uh, there's one company in Minneapolis called OPTP, or the Orthopedic Physical Therapy Products. They tend to be the McKenzie uh, distributor. Um, on the left there is a book that he wrote for the public quite a while ago. We have Treat Your Own Back, Treat Your Own Neck. These are in Spanish as well if you're working in the Spanish culture. Um, and then the, the manuals uh, for this. There's two manuals for cervical, volume one and two. Lumbar is the same way, and then the extremity has uh, one. All right. There's got to be one question at least out there. Yes? Um, sleep habits. So, like for cervical spine pain, where you tell patients what, what should they be sleeping on pillow-wise? Um, most of the time I would recommend side sleeping, and I would use a little roll inside the pillowcase, uh, which you can purchase, or you can take a towel and slide it in the pillow. And so they have a little bit of a rolled uh towel just to maintain that positioning of the neck and sometimes they with just the right position they lay over that head on the pillow and then sometimes that, that can be helpful. I personally again I don't get any money for this so I bought my pillows I'm familiar with those they're advertised all over the place so my pillow made in Minnesota US manufacturer and they have three different um, intensities or, or stiffness whatever 
I really like those pillows. But uh, so they, you know, that that would be my recommendation for the type of pillow to buy. If they have their own pillow they like, then I would just use a small rolled hand towel or something inside the pillowcase to kind of give them a support. So, um, you know, if they're prone sleepers, it's really uh, difficult because they're, they're, you know, they're sleeping at end range constantly during the during the night. So I really encourage them to kind of get back on their on their uh, side. If for some reason they can't sleep on their side, then a small pillow laying on their back usually is okay, with maybe just a little bit of a roll to um, accentuate their lordosis. Uh, there's also a sleeping roll for lumbar. Um, if you uh, if you go on the OPTP website, you'll see it's it's a bigger roll. It actually kind of ties in front, and it's a roll that goes around. The idea would be that if you're laying on your back, there's going to keep a little lordosis on your side. It's going to keep you from going into side bending by keeping you more in neutral. They can take a beach towel and roll it up and pin it or tie it in front. See if that's of any any benefit. Um, pillow between the knees, that type of thing. The, um, the biggest thing is they, if they go through the program, that night pain will get better uh, because that is a common complaint is, you know, I'll wake up at 3 in the morning and my back is really bothering me and I can't seem to change it. I would encourage those patients to get on the floor and do their exercises and see if that changes the mechanics of it. It's generally not tolerated well. So this is an exercise where we go through end range motion but sustained in that posture. Unless they have a lot of good flexibility, it tends to put the ligaments on sustained stretch and they can, they can aggravate. It doesn't aggravate their condition, but they don't generally tolerate it well. So, um, so I usually don't recommend, you know, I, I ask patients, do you ever lay on your stomach? And they said, no, I can't sleep on my stomach. And I, that's not the question. Can you lay on your stomach? And so then they get on the table and they can tolerate that well, but I don't generally encourage them to sleep in that position. So, good questions. When you were telling her to sleep on the side for cervical pain, do you put the painful next side down or up? That's just whatever they tolerate. So yeah. Down. There's no direct uh, repetitive indication there, I don't think. So, yes? Yeah, um, I'm not a therapist, I'm an anesthesiologist, but I do a lot of dry needling. Okay, and yep. I see the benefit of actually <coughs> also dry needling at the beginning really relieves the tension. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the symptoms are gone. But of course, I think your point is, you know, that it, if they're still doing the same bad habits, for instance, a dentist who is always... Yeah, the absolutely. Yeah. They need the exercise. Or, 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 <coughs> Oh, yeah, dry needling is uh, very popular in physical therapy right now and uh, in other professions, obviously. So it's, um, so that's, in case you don't know, it's using acupuncture needles to uh, break up trigger points, basically, based on Janet Travell's work. Um, so uh, I have a partner who dry needles, and there's some patients that I can't get better with. Uh, they're just not mechanical, or they have something so long-term that you can't change it, and so she does dry needle. And that's, that's it is a... Shall I say a fad in PT right now that, like manual therapy, um, is a is a big focus in physical therapy, um, but we won't go on our soapboxes right now. So, okay. Any other questions? It's uh, three minutes after nine. You have 17 minutes to get to your next course. Thank you.